morning. Welcome to all of you here in the sanctuary in Brown Chapel listening uh, to live stream. We are delighted to see you and to join our hearts together uh, in this very special place for a very special purpose. Now, my privilege today, uh, before we get into the word, is to let you know about our associate pastor's offering that we receive uh, today. Uh, we do it uh, every May, and uh, it is a time that we realize we can do it any time, and some of you do, but it's a time that we write notes or send a text or email. We give an offering to our associate pastor staff. And um, could, could you guys give me the card or the back of the bulletin there? And let me uh, direct your attention. Thank you. Uh, you received a postcard like this uh, the last, uh, earlier, a few days ago. And I want to tell you, you need to hold on to that to, because to have that much beauty and handsomeness in one card is, is, is worth its weight in gold, I'll tell you that. But um, seriously, we wanted to remind you of our uh, team of associate pastors that are such a blessing to us. I want to ask you to do what I'm doing, and that is to make a gift to them and to just say thank you for what you do for us, what you mean to us and you can do it here today. You can give it in the offering in the boxes as you go out. You can text uh, your gift to um, the phone number that we usually use, the, the, the uh, Kindred. And the keyword is pastors, plural, pastors. Um, and we'll be sure that it uh, gets to, to them if you do that. Or you can give online at Columbia, uh, clcolumbia.com. Uh, and, and go, go to giving, and you can do it that way. Um, I want to tell you about my first associate pastor's appreciation day here. Um, it was, I guess, what, 27 or 8 years ago, 28 years ago, uh, I guess. And um, I, it was my first one, and I wanted people to understand you know, people are always so gracious to the pastor, but sometimes they don't think the same way, and they should. They don't think the same way about the associates as they do when they remember the pastor. So I wanted to give a good, a good uh, commendation to them. And I wrote a letter, I think it was like a page and a half, something like that, telling folks why they ought to give uh, to the associates. And that was before we had email or anything. We were going to mail it out. And my secretary at the time, Noel Waldrop, um, Noel had a way of letting her opinion be known to me whether I wanted it or not. And she was such a help. She saved me so much trouble. Uh, that's a compliment. I'm trying to be funny, but it was a compliment. She said, uh, Pastor, this letter is a masterpiece. And I said, well, thank you. She said, it's also a waste. And uh, I said, why are you saying this letter? How can it be a masterpiece and a waste? She said, it's going to be a lot of paper we got to use to print this letter. And everything you said, this congregation already knows. And um, I thought about it a little bit and I said, okay, let's try it your way. And she put it on a little postcard, uh, what needed to be said, the time, the when, the house. And um, you know what I found out every year since then that she was right. You already know anything that I could take five minutes to stand here and say in addition today 
So I just want to give you the invitation. Again, you can do text giving to pastors, um, or you can give in the box on your way out. We have boxes at different places as you leave the sanctuary uh, or give online. But uh, I'm asking you to do your best for these guys and gals. They are such a blessing. We could not get done what is done around here without their help and leadership. So, uh, Father, we, yeah, let them know. And we bless them, Father. We bless them in the name of Jesus. We ask you to strengthen them, supply all of their needs and some of their wants according to your riches and glory. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. And Justin, would you come, because we have so many other ways to give regular giving, I'll forget something. You fill us in on that. Yes, sir. I just wanted to say um, that it is a privilege to give. And um, my brothers and I had the honor, we're kind of cleaning out our parents' house and going through some things. And my dad had a tendency to collect his pocket change. And so we've gathered all the containers of pocket change together. And I rolled coins for about four hours. And I talked to my brothers. We could have given it to the grandkids. We could have gone to dinner. But we felt in honor of my mom and dad who loved missions, we would give those coins to Boys and Girls Missions Challenge. And you might say, but that was just a bunch of coins. No, it was intentional and deliberate use of a resource that was available to me and to my brothers and I just want to encourage you as you give today, be intentional and deliberate about the resources God gives you because he's called us to more than just um, a ritualistic, have-to, obligatory worship. It's a generosity from our hearts, and it's a pleasure to serve him in that way. So I just want to encourage you in that. that that's been such a blessing to me and to my brothers to be able to do that. And that's just a small way. And you know what? Every... Small gift matters and counts. So you might say today, well, I, I, don't, you know, I don't know if I have enough to give today. Whatever you have and whatever the Holy Spirit puts on your heart, that's enough. That's enough because he's our source. Um, I want to also remind you about our South Carolina School of Leadership graduation this afternoon at 5 o'clock. You may want to get here about 4.15, 4.30 to get a good seat. This is the last of the last. We had the first of the first class more than 15 years ago, and this is the last of the last as we feel the Lord's moving us in another direction. So it'll be a great day of celebration and honor, and we want you to be a part of it as our church family. How many school leadership students and families do we have here this morning? All right, good. Okay, good. Got a couple of you. Some were in the first service, but we want to celebrate and honor these special students today. Let me pray over the offering, and then we'll get into the message. Father, thank you that we can give online. We can give via text. We can write a check. We can give coins rolled up. It doesn't matter how we give. It's that we are being obedient to the Spirit of God that is leading us. Lord, I thank you for this generous, Spirit-led congregation. Time after time, they have come through because you've come through. They are faithful because you've been faithful. They are generous because you have shown them how to be generous. And Lord, it's an amazing thing to watch. And so, Father, as we give as an act of worship today, we ask that you bless it, multiply it, make it everything it needs to be to advance your kingdom, to advance your purposes on the earth. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. Pastor, come and share your heart this morning. Amen. Thank you, Justin, and thank you for your giving. We appreciate it so very much. Um, this is not sermon time, so don't start your clocks now. 
But um, <clears throat> I want to just share for about four or five minutes or so uh, something that's on my heart. And we're going to go to the Lord in prayer. Pastor Corey has mentioned um, the shooting in Buffalo. Um, I have been so uh, burdened for, well, I've been burdened for a long time, but maybe the last three weeks in particular, um, about just the incredible violence that seems to have seized our nation. And there's all kinds of sources. There's all kinds of venues. Um, it's, some of it is uh, the, 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 the leaked memo about Roe versus Wade has just exploded with um, mean-spiritedness and uh, a, a lot of animosity that we haven't seen the last of. Um, there, there's, our cities seem out of control. We are gonna pray about the Buffalo shooting, which in and of itself is a tragedy, but don't forget we've had issues at our own mall here a few weeks ago. Um, there is a loss of safety. There's a loss of civility throughout the land. We don't know how to solve the problem at the border. And none of those things are said in the context of politics because every one of the issues that I just mentioned has, a, has a, politics from this side and politics from that side or ideologies, maybe I should say, instead of politics. We're, we're not here today to pray about ideologies. We're here to pray about the loss of the rule of law in our nation. And we want to pray that God will help these people and that God will do something in our hearts as a nation. I still think the church is making a strategic mistake, the church in general, I'm not talking about our church, but we are still putting our trust in politics and we're putting our trust in prophecy that is not, um, and, and neither of which are balanced, neither of which are addressing everything. I'm certainly not opposed to politics. I'm certainly not opposed to prophecy. But what I find in America is we are looking to everything except a return to our knees and a return to the Lord to solve these things. Now, there are political things that need to be done. There are prophecies that need to be lived out. But I'm thinking the church in America has done one of three things. They've either said the church is doing nothing, so we'll let politics take over. Or they're saying politics is doing nothing, so we will have a, a, a declaration of the kingdom of God. This is going to happen, and that's going to happen. We have people trying to make declarations uh, about the kingdom that have their own lives so screwed up, they're not in a position to make any kind of declaration. Or the average church in America just says, we don't want to get involved. We, just, we, we, we don't want to muddy the water and I am concerned, loved ones, especially as we move further along with the Supreme Court decisions that will be made, I am afraid at how few churches are going to be willing to stand when it costs them something. And we need to be aware that this is moving very quickly into a place where it's gonna cost something to, uh, to, to believe what we believe. And cowardice is not the way to deal with it. Uh, neutrality is not the way to deal with it. But um, we have got to, uh, let, me, let me put it to you this way. If you were, went to hear Tony Evans this week, uh, how many of you went? Uh, yeah, a handful. Um, it, it wasn't as advertised as, as well as it should have been. It, just, it sneaked up on us here. 
Um, but Tony Evans did a, did a fabulous job. I, I went to two of the three services. And um, Tony Evans said his, his message Friday night to me, or Thursday night to me, was um, one of the best sermons to a nation, if not the best sermon, that I've ever heard. Everything he said, it's, we've said it here over and over again. It wasn't anything new, but it was so powerful. I loved one thing in particular he said. Um, he said, we are very concerned about God doing something in the White House, but if we're following scripture and if judgment begins at the house of God, God's not gonna do what he wants to do in the White House till he does what he wants to do in the church house. And I think that's very true, whether you're Democrat or Republican or conservative or liberal, we have got to understand that uh, if, if God is behind a judgment on our nation, then the only way to deal with that judgment is to turn to God. And uh, I just want us to pray today. I know that we're praying. We have our prayer points. Um, we can't do everything that we'd like to do. We can't say everything we'd like to say. There's just not time or venue for it. But we are always going to make room for prayer. And uh, we want to just take a moment today. Um, we're going to begin with the Lord's Prayer because you say, why are we doing that? Because that's a universal prayer. And if I don't do it first, I'll forget it. And then we're going to go right out of the Lord's Prayer into a prayer for our nation. Let me, let me make you alert of a word that's in Scripture. And it's, it's in several places in regard to the last days. And it is the word lawlessness. Um, the uh, Apostle Paul in 2 Thessalonians 2 talked about the man of lawlessness. He says there's going to come a falling away. And he wasn't talking about the American way of life. He was talking about a falling away from the principles of righteousness. And he said when the falling away occurs, there's going to be a revelation of the man of sin, the man of lawlessness. And we must not buy into lawlessness. We must not buy into violence. We must not buy into mall shootings as a way of resolving the problems of society. It's the spirit of lawlessness. It's the spirit of antichrist. So we want to pray that the spirit of Christ will take root uh, first in the church and then that it will be spreading out through all of society. Let's look to the screen as we pray the Lord's Prayer together. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive them that trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever and ever. And Father, we pray for our nation. We know that uh, th there are so many opinions and so many nuances, and those things aren't in and of themselves wrong. We have, that's one of the blessings we have as Americans, that the Christians in the early church didn't have much of, and that is the right to an opinion. So we thank you for the right to an opinion. We thank you that we have the ability to speak what we believe. But oh, Father, help us to speak more importantly what you believe. Help us to speak more importantly what reflects our faith and not anything else. Let everything else be secondary. 
We pray because we know that over our nation, there is a spirit of lawlessness that has been unleashed. We believe that it is demonic. We believe that uh, there's never a right way to do a wrong thing. So we pray for the spirit of righteousness. The Bible says that uh, righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. So Lord, we pray for righteousness to settle upon our politicians. We ask for righteousness to settle upon our pastors. May they begin to preach what they know we ought to preach again. Father, will you let righteousness settle on our churches so that once again we can be the conscience of a nation. Uh, may something happen because we're calling on God. Some things happen when we pray that don't happen if we do not pray. So Lord, we're willingly laying aside our methods and we're laying aside our agendas that have come from our own hearts. And we say, Lord, show us your way. Show us your path. Show us your agenda. Show us your righteousness and let it begin to flood our nation. Lord, we know that elections make a difference and we pray for our elections. We know that politics can form a person's worldview and we pray for the politics of this nation. But Lord, we pray that your spirit would reveal himself from the highest to the lowest levels, do something, Lord, from, the, from the, the Pope to the pastor to the Sunday school teacher, do something by your spirit so that we will learn that it's not by might, it's not by power, but it's by the spirit of the living God. Help folks that are hurting. Help folks, that's, the, the, the years we've had of unrest and violence. Help those that are, have been victims. Help those that have been done wrong. Let righteousness prevail. Let justice prevail. Lord, work in our land, but Lord, let us be fully committed to it being a work of the Holy Spirit through the church. And we ask you to help us to be your representatives in a very dark time. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Okay, now I'm preaching. Now, <clears throat> for those of you that keep record of the, you know, the time. Um, <clears throat> we have been talking about fullness, and that's where we're going to be basically for the rest of the year, at least up to the holidays. Um, we began the series with three or four messages in general about fullness, and then we went on a sub-series and really the message throughout the year on fullness is going to be a handful of individual lessons and two or three sub-series in there, uh, great words of the Christian faith. And um, if, if when we get through this, we've got a couple other things that we want to deal with. And then we want to take uh, a couple of months and talk about your identity in Jesus. And I don't mean by that, you know, I have this right and I have that right. That may be something that grows out of it. But we want to talk about what Jesus and the apostles used to describe us. 
You are a field, you know, you are a plant in God's field. You are a stone in God's temple. You are a sheep in God's pasture. You are a worker in God's kingdom. You are a runner in God's race. We want to look at how the apostles and Jesus used uh, everyday analogies to help us to understand our responsibility and what we are to do. That'll be the next sub-series, I think. Um, but this one will be coming to an end uh, this month. There are three words left, sanctification, assurance, and glorification. We're going to deal with sanctification today. And when the other two messages after today are done, this spot right back here will be filled up with the other two definitions. And you'll have great words that reflect our choice, that reflect the change, the consequences of our choice and change coming together. And these last three words reflect the challenge. Not that um, at any point in time does our salvation shift to salvation by our effort or by our works. It's always by grace. And it's always assisted by faith. But the word challenge tells us that we look ahead. We celebrate what God did and boy, we celebrate what he's doing in our midst right now. But there are three areas that have to do, they're heavily weighted in the future. First is sanctification. Now you say, well, I'm already sanctified. That's true. I've taught that enough. We ought to know that. We are sanctified. But sanctification in scripture is heavy on going into the future. It's, it's powerful in the past. It's, it's magnificent in the present, but the, the weight of sanctification is in the future. The same with glorification. We don't know what to do with glorification. Well, yeah, when I, that'll mean I get to heaven and I get either a banjo or a, a harp or something, and I get wings and I get to sit on a cloud and play Pentecostal bluegrass worship all throughout eternity. No, we have only a sliver of the smallest idea of how magnificent eternity is going to be. Um, the Bible says that ear has not heard, eye has not seen and comprehended. It's never even entered into the heart of man, the things that God has prepared for them that love him. Some of it though has been revealed to us by a spirit, but loved ones, we know so little about heaven. We think we know it. I preached a series on heaven maybe four years ago, five years ago, took me about eight weeks to do it. And you'd say, boy, we know a lot about heaven. What we know about heaven probably takes eight weeks to go through, but it is only a minuscule part of what heaven's going to be like. In that series, I said, to understand heaven, you've got to understand it's like looking out your front door through the peephole, and all you can see is just maybe the front yard, but you can't see to Wyoming. You can't see to the other side of the world. You can't see the stars in the sky. And that's what the Bible tells us about heaven. It's just a peep out the keyhole. But there is going to be this thing called glorification. And God is, uh, we, we're going to talk about that as one of the great words. You and I are scheduled for glorification. We're not just scheduled for heaven. We're not just scheduled for resurrection. We are scheduled for something that is beyond comprehension, glorification. But there's another word we'll talk about next week, Lord willing. It's the word assurance. Uh, 
We Pentecostals are some of the weakest theologically on assurance. The reason we're so weak on it, you know, there are some denominations uh, that are uh, Calvinistic or to one degree or another, or we might say once saved, always saved. And they do a pretty good job of teaching assurance. But we, on the other hand, um, have been such, uh, so directed, and it's a good thing, toward holiness, toward keeping our lives clean, that we have to be careful or we will very easily slip out of assurance into works. And, and we, 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 we realize there's a thin line between arrogance and assurance. But there is such a thing as assurance. And one of the great things that I think God is doing in the Pentecostal church, churches like ours, is he's teaching us that even though holiness and obedience is important, scripture says, let everyone who names the name of Christ depart from iniquity. All of that is important, but we also need to learn what it means to have the assurance that he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it in the day of Christ. So he's helping us and we will have this little card filled out and ready for you to carry for the rest of your life. No pressure, just carry it the rest of your life so that the dozen words or so that are great words of the Christian faith, if we can understand those sentences, I think we'll go a long way in understanding more about the beautiful fullness of the Christian life. Now, I want to look at some scriptures today that uh, are easy to just set over here on the side and, and we can dwell on those alone, but they have to be connected with everything else. Remember, we say it often, Doctrine is built not on a verse, but on the verses. Truth, you can, you can come up, you can make the Bible say almost anything. You know, uh, uh, my, well, I won't identify the person because they may be online. I don't know. But one time when I was uh, a teenager and it was very important, your clothes, when, you're, when you were 13, 14 years old in the 60s. It was very important what you wear. And I was trying to um, decide uh, which shirt I wanted to buy to go with these new pants that I had. And I just couldn't decide. And I, was, I, I just left. I said, well, I won't decide. That was a Saturday. I said, I'll come back down Monday and uh, I'll make a decision then. And I was talking about it at church. And I was talking to this girl I was trying to impress. You know, she was a marriageable age. She was probably 12, 13. And, and <laughs> I said, which one do you think? And uh, he said, you need to just be more, the, this teacher said, you need to be more scriptural. You're, you're being carnal. And I didn't think I was being carnal by wanting the best shirt. But my mom and dad always taught me to be respectful. And he said, that's very unbiblical. And I, I said, what, help me, I don't want to disobey God. What, what verse am I violating? He said, Jesus said very clearly, take no thought about what you shall wear. And I thought, it does say that. It does say that. And of course, we know that Jesus was saying, don't worry about where your clothes are going to come from. I clothe the animals of the field. I clothe you. But he wanted me to feel like I was being carnal and worldly for being unable to decide which shirt. You say, well, what'd you do? I said, well... Okay, thank you. And then I went down and bought both of them. So, uh, 
I mean, I'd, I'd just gotten a, my first job and I was in pretty high cotton. I was making $1.45 an hour. So I, I had money to burn, you know. But that's an illustration of what I'm trying to say. We don't, first of all, we don't build doctrine on a verse. We build it on all the verses. Plus it helps if you're interpreting the verse correctly, you know. And, uh, uh, but one of the verses I want us to look at is Matthew 24, 13. It says, but the one who endures to the end is the one who will be saved. Now that verse now, it can be a motivation to this, but that verse is not saying, hey, you know, you've got to just remain faithful. And, and if, if you want to be saved, you better be saved, faithful the rest of your life. Well, there's plenty of teachings in Scripture that we need to be faithful to the end of our lives. But Jesus was saying two things, I think. He was saying that there is coming a culmination of this thing called the experience of uh, Christian experience of salvation. The one who endures through the process will be saved. He was saying there is a culmination. There's coming an end. There's a day when this will end. Now the, the day when this ends will be the end of this age. And it will end with our death or the return of Christ. But that's not the end of the process. In fact, I want to tell you right now, the process of salvation never ends. There's, there's never, a, okay, everything's done. Because every moment that we are in the presence of Jesus, we will continue to grow and be more like him. There's not going to come a time when we go to heaven and somebody say, let's move on to something else. We've learned everything there is to learn here. No, it, it, it is an unending salvation, but as far as this world is concerned, it will culminate. And the second thing that I think is inherent in this verse is that because we know that this phase will come to an end, there is a challenge that we are to remain faithful so that we end strongly the first process and begin the next process. Philippians 2, so then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Now they had been saved, for by grace are ye saved. They had been saved, but he said there's still some defining work, not in the sense of am I saved or not saved, but bringing to fullness all that that salvation means. And he says, not only do you need to work out your own salvation, but understand that God who saved you is still working in you. For it is God who is at work in you, both to desire and to work for his good pleasure. He said, that desire you have to please him, that desire you have to do the right thing, that's God working in you. It's God continuing the process that he, uh, that he began. Now, here's my, one of my favorite verses in all of the New Testament. All the Bible, for that matter. One of my favorites. 1 John 3, 1 and 2. See how great a love the Father has given us that we would be called children of God. And in fact, we are. This is the reason the world doesn't know us because it doesn't know him. He says, behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called the children of God. And make no mistake, he says, that's exactly what we are. And we say, oh, oh, 
I'm, I'm a child of God. And we are. But then it says in verse 2, now we are the children of God. That's what we just said. But it has not yet appeared, or has it not appeared as yet, what we shall be. He says, you are God's child as sure as the sky is blue, surer than the sky being blue. You are God's child. That's what you are right now. But let me also fill you in on something else. What you are going to become in fulfillment as God's child is not even on the record yet. It does not yet appear what we shall be. Well, when is it going to happen? We know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him just as he is. And everyone who has this hope set on him purifies himself just as he is pure. Now, what he's saying is that you know you are holy because you have been sanctified. And what your job is since you have been sanctified is to get sanctified. He says it is a standing that you have and it is a journey that you were on. Um, sanctification, this is the key word that's on your card for sanctification. Sanctification describes both our standing and our journey. We are declared completely holy immediately when we receive Christ. Loved ones, I want to tell you this. You may be a brand new Christian. You may say, Pastor, I gave my heart to Jesus last night after a night at a bar. I came home miserable and I called 700 Club and gave my heart to Jesus at five o'clock this morning. So I'm, I'm saved, but just barely. No, sir, I want you to know you'll never be more ready for heaven than you are right now. The blood of Jesus cleanses you from all sin. The blood of Jesus brought you from death unto life, from darkness unto light. John said, this is, this is what we know. We have passed, not we're going to, but we have passed from death unto life. We are totally, completely sanctified. I am holy. I am forgiven. I am his. The very nanosecond. In fact, it's less than that because it's beyond time. When I come to Jesus, I am ready for heaven. But I am to spend the rest of my life learning how to make my behavior measure up with what has happened on the inside. There are some ways I can never be more like Jesus. It's in regard to how Father looks at me. He's not looking at my righteousness. He's looking at the righteousness of Jesus. And whether you've been saved for 60 years or whether you've been saved for 60 seconds, you are clothed in the same righteousness of Christ and you are sanctified. But after you get up from the altar, as, as my pastor used to say, after you get up from the altar and the snot's been wiped away, how are you going to live? That's continued sanctification. Um, we are vessels who are separated from common use. That's, that's where the word sanctified comes from. It means set apart to that which is holy. We are vessels who are separated from common use and dedicated to God's directive. We are changed immediately and completely in the inner man, but the growth is more gradual in our natural man. It's like birth. When a child is born, you might say, oh, he looks like his mama, or he looks like his daddy, or he looks like Uncle Fred, or cousin Cleopas. I mean, you, you look at that baby just a few hours old and you say, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. He, he's, 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 I know who he's going to look like. He's going to look like Aunt Sarah or, or whoever. 
But loved ones, the fact is, as the child grows, he looks more and more like whoever he's going to look like in the family. But what we remember is that from the moment that child was conceived, the moment the child was conceived, that child was part of the family. We don't believe that life begins at birth. We believe that life begins at conception. And at that moment, he's part of the family or she's part of the family. But we don't expect that child to be born speaking in complete sentences. Or the baby on its first couple of days is not going to pick up, you know, Southern living and be flipping through the magazine reading. That child is going to grow. That child's going to learn behavior. That child's going to change in its appearance. You know, the older I get, uh, it's, it's, I'm, Daddy, it's a compliment, but it's also very sobering. The older I get, the more I look like my daddy. And, and I, I, don't, I never thought I looked like my daddy until I was in my, my middle life. But I realize as I get older, I'm looking more and more like him. And that's the way it is in our spiritual life. We have everything. You know what? I didn't take any cliff chitty shots. I didn't have any work done. I didn't dye my hair or get a new haircut. It's just, it was always there. It was always going to come to the surface. Um, always. My daughter, Molly, looks so much like my mother. My, my, uh, each of my children look like somebody, but Molly looks like my mother, and when she was born, we couldn't figure out who she looked like. You know, I don't know. I, no, 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 I don't know. And Molly was probably 18 months old before we figured it out. We found an old picture of my mom when she was two years old, and they looked like identical twins. They looked like identical twins. But I had never seen or had not in a long time seen that picture of my mom as a two-year-old. But when I saw her and held the picture up, Next to Molly, I said, that's who she looks like. She's the spitting image of my mom, and she looks just like her. But I'm saying that none of that change came about by additions or alterations. It was just part of who the baby was. And loved ones, when you come to Jesus, you are a Chitty or a Smith or a Brunson or a whatever you are. Um, it, just like you were that in the natural you become a Jesus in the spiritual. And everything that Jesus is, is inside of you. The Bible says that we have the seed of God. And that's not the word for seed like a corn seed or an okra seed. It's the word for sperma, for a, a, a reproductive seed. He said, when you come to Jesus, you are the seed of God. And everything that's in God is in you. And the process of sanctification, are, are you with me? It's to bring it out. I mean, it's there. Don't say, oh, if I could go to a better church, I'd be more like Jesus. Or if I could go to a, uh, hear a, a, a better teacher, I'd be like Jesus. Or I could move to a different part of the country that's more spiritually free, I'd be like Jesus. Yeah, sometimes you need to make a move. Sometimes, you, yeah, it does depend on what you listen to. I, I know that. But what I'm saying is you don't have to reach out to get more of Jesus, it's in you. And we just need to be sure that we grow up into it. Now, how can this be? We are born again and we immediately take on the full righteousness of Christ. 
This is our standing or our identity in Jesus. This is like deliverance from Egypt. I'll explain that in just a second. But our behavior must learn to express this new nature. Our goal is to grow into maturity. This is the transformation of the fleshly being, not the carnal being, but the flesh and blood being. It is our journey. So we have our identity in sanctification. We also have our journey in sanctification. This is like conquering the promised land. Corey is doing a fantastic job on Wednesday nights on typology. And when you start looking at things like typology, I don't think he's gotten this far yet, but uh, you're going to find out things like uh, when we become a Christian, that, is, that was typified by their deliverance from Egypt. I mean, they were in a night's time, you know, in a 24-hour time, they were delivered from darkness into light. They became a kingdom when the Passover occurred and the angel of death passed over them because the blood was applied to their life. They never had to go through Passover again. They celebrated it every year, but they never had to go through Passover again. That was a once and for all event. But what God did have for them was a thing called possessing the land. See, I grew up thinking I had put two and two together. If Passover was salvation, then going to the promised land had to be going to heaven. And I thought, well, that's good. Every time we'd sing about the promised land, I think we were singing about heaven. And uh, I wasn't taught this, but I just put two and two together and got seven. And what I, I, I had a, I had a come to Jesus moment one day and I realized I'm really disappointed in heaven if this is heaven because there are giants there. There's famine there. There's war there. There's mean people there. I, I'm, is heaven really going to be like that? And you know what my pastor, I just needed to listen a little bit longer. What my pastor taught us is that coming out of Egypt was like the, I mean, was the Passover was like getting saved, but going into the promised land was sanctification. It was growing into my destiny. It was growing into my heritage. And the, the work of sanctification is us winning battle after battle after battle so that more and more of the land that was promised to us becomes ours. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. Now, we live with the end in view, okay? Um, we, we've talked about that already, but let me just give you a quote I think is in your notes from William Hull, and this is the way he says it. The center of gravity of the salvation experience lies in the future. With these last three words, we're celebrating what God did, we're energized in what he's doing now, but our focus is what God's going to complete in us in the future. We are living lives made holy. Now let me give you, when, when we use the word paradox, we're talking about something that we know to be true, but can't be true because of contradictory material. Yet it is true. And a lot of Christianity is like that. You know, the first shall be last, the last shall be first. Um, you know, and God's kingdom operates on a series of paradoxical statements to us because it has to be understood with the spiritual mind, not the carnal mind. Here's the first one. This is in your notes under lives made holy. Sanctification is seen as crisis and process. Now, that is contradictory. 
Crisis, by crisis, we don't mean like a bad thing, but we mean it is an event. Maybe event is a better uh, word for us to use. It is an event, a one, uh, once and for all event, but it is also a process. Sanctification is seen as something that happens immediately, but then it is also a journey that we walk on. Um, I better go on. Uh, number two, sanctification involves both negative and positive elements. Um, we need to understand a lot of us grew up in a, in a legalistic uh, background where everything was wrong. It's either illegal, immoral, or fattening, anything that was fun. And, and so we grew up in a setting that if it was, if it was fun, there must be sin in it somewhere. Um, and we, we grew up in that legalistic thing. Some of us grew up in, in a lawless environment where nothing was wrong, you know, and God's grace is so amazing. You can live any way you want to and his grace covers you. And both of those views are very, very dangerous. But we understand as we study the scripture that sanctification is both negative and positive. It's, it's like marriage, and I don't mean to be crude when I say this, but it's, it's like marriage. When a man says, you know, I, Joe, take you, Jane, you know, to be my wedded wife for richer, for poorer, for, you know, stupider and smarter, or whatever, whatever vows you choose, um, you, are, you, are, you are really entering a, a sanctified relationship. And it has negative and it has positive. And if you have kept yourself morally pure and you're standing there at the altar and, and two virgins look at each other and they're in love with each other, that is such a precious thing. And they are being given permission in the eyes of God and by the pastor, uh, activity that has been uh, out of bounds in your life is now permitted between you two. You are going to be husband and wife. You will be naked and unashamed and you are going to know each other in, in ways that you could never only imagine before. And man, you know, the, the guy's starting to sweat and he said, oh wow, this is, this is going to be great. I got a whole new world opened up to me. And that's true. But if he listens to the vows, he also has a few restrictions. You can hold your wife, hold her and embrace her sexually and intimately and in a way you've never experienced before. The only problem is you can't do that with anybody else. I mean, you've got this one, but the other four billion are off limits. <laughs> See, there, there is the, sanctification has negative and positive like in, like in a marriage or like any kind of worthwhile relationships. It, it's not just a freedom, but we also need to understand there's some things you have to say no to. But we also must be careful because I grew up with the understanding, it wasn't taught in my church, it was inferred in my church, that if you're sanctified, the more sanctified you are, the more narrow your life and the more miserable your life and the more restricted your life. That's true in some ways, but it was designed to open up quality of life, not to make my life miserable. We'll talk about that in just a minute. If you can catch up, we'll talk about it in just a moment. Here's the third paradox. Even though sanctification is complete now, it won't be complete until we see Jesus. 
Salvation will be completed, John said, when we see him. I, I don't think this needs a lot of explanation. It's logical. Oh yeah, when we see Jesus, we'll, we'll have fullness. But I think we need to contemplate this. When we see Jesus, it's not going to just be, Jesus, hey buddy, remember me? I believe we will be so overwhelmed. That's why we're transformed. That's, that's what the rapture is. The rapture is us seeing Jesus, whether it's pre, mid, or post. Our, the rapture is us seeing Jesus. And when we see him, we are so utterly and eternally changed. We're not the same as we used to be. It's going to be majestic when we see him. And this thing called sanctification that we are struggling along with right now, at that moment in the twinkling of an eye, it will be completed. Absolutely completed. Now, here's the fourth thing. Sanctification is both passive. That is, when I am sanctified, I rest in him. But it's also active. I continue to work out my salvation with fear and trembling. Now, what are the life lessons we deal with? Let me cover these just very quickly. And they are, they are kind of summary. I've, I've touched on most of these, but these are four summary statements that we want to take into wrapping our arms around sanctification. Number one, salvation, like the Sabbath, is designed to make our lives beautiful, not oppressive. Um, now, there are those that grew up in a church, perhaps. Well, some of you didn't grow up in any church at all. You're probably the easiest ones to teach. But there are some of us that grew up in a church that was a very, um, it, it sounds insulting. I just don't know of another word to use. I, I, I want to use the word liberal, but that's, that's so politically charged right now. I'm not talking about political liberalism. I'm talking about theological liberalism, which is a bad thing. And you, you grew up in a liberal or a lawless church. And sanctification, if it was studied at all, just said, well, you're okay. You, you, you could do better, but you're all right. And um, that can be a dangerous thing because we are all right, but we're not all right because we're all right. We're all right because Jesus has forgiven us. And we need to understand the cost of that all right. You know, it's like somebody gives you a $10,000 gift certificate to go buy whatever you want. You say, I give, boy, all of this stuff is free. It's not free. Somebody paid $10,000 for that before you ever got it. And that's the way salvation is. Um, but then others that grew up maybe in a church like I did, and, and, and I don't, I'm not criticizing my church. I love my church. It's a church that brought me to Jesus. And I am so thankful for my Pentecostal upbringing. But in an, in, a, in an attempt to be holy people, we made rules that were extra biblical or beyond uh, reason. Um, and when I, I wasn't trying to be controversial, but just I remember asking our youth leader, why is this wrong? I, and I, I wanted a verse. And as God is my witness, I wasn't trying to argue. I just wanted to be able to give a verse when I told people this was wrong. And everything was, well, don't be like the world. That was the verse that was used for everything. Don't be like the world. Well, why is this like the world? I mean, I didn't dare ask that question. I'd probably get a whipping if I'd asked that, if I'd asked that question. I grew up in a neighborhood where you were liable to get whippings from any number of people at any time. 
And, uh, but but I, I grew up and I didn't know why this was wrong or that was wrong. Now, you know what? I think a lot of those things were wrong. I think a lot of those things that people take liberty in doing today, I think they're still counterproductive. I don't think they're, they're good for you. And if there's not a scripture that says thou shalt not, there, are, there is a reason to, to, to leave it alone. It's not a helpful thing. But what I, I think what my generation in AG churches, Pentecostal holiness churches, churches of God, uh, church of God in Christ. I think one of the snags that we ran into is that we were so eager to be holy that we indiscriminately made things unholy. Just didn't want to, didn't want to go that way. I know I have a very good friend that grew up in a church where drinking a Coke or Pepsi was wrong, but drinking Sprite or orange was okay. Cause it was light versus dark. I'm serious. I'm serious. But you know what Jesus said about the Sabbath? The Sabbath was the biggest issue other than the temple. The Sabbath was probably the biggest issue that Jesus had to wrestle with as he tried to bring the message of salvation to Israel. And the Sabbath had, had devolved into this thing that had so many laws, so many fence laws. Forgive me for repeating. I know I've taught you this before. There's 614 laws in the Old Testament. Um, and every one of them had an average of 10 fence laws around it. Not all of them, but, um, you know, remember the Sabbath thing, keep it holy, turned into a, you can't travel this far on the Sabbath day. You can't eat an egg laid on the Sabbath day. If the flea is on your leg, you can't scratch because that's hunting on the Sabbath day. And I'm, I'm not, I'm, I, I'm not making those up. Those were fence laws. They were laws that said, we want to so obey God, we don't even want to get close. So they put fence laws. So a Jew in the times of Jesus, because of the rabbinical law and the oral tradition, he grew up with over 6,000 laws he had to keep. Over 6,000. Now God gave a lot with 614. That, was, that could be tedious in and of itself. But the Sabbath had all of these fence laws and so when the disciples rubbed the grain between their palms to eat on the Sabbath day because they were hungry, Jesus said, you don't understand that the Sabbath was made for man. Man was not made for the Sabbath. And he explained why, or he referred, he didn't really explain why. Uh, that's another sermon. But he explained why it was permissible for David to eat bread that was reserved for the priests because there, there was a purpose behind, there's a purpose behind everything God does. And what Jesus was basically saying is that the law is not given to destroy life. The law is given to enhance life. And, and he said this, the Sabbath was made for man. The Sabbath was made to serve man. Now, he wasn't saying the Sabbath doesn't matter. That's what we have a tendency to do. Something that's hard, we just disregard it. But he said, the Sabbath was made for man. And he says, whenever you observe the Sabbath, it will make your life richer. It will make your life better. Do you know what was at the heart of the Sabbath? Let's say Corey is just an average uh, Israelite man. 
during the time of Jesus or during the Old Testament, whenever you want to put him there, it was a hand-to-mouth existence. There was oppression. Now, only during some very prosperous times was this not the case. Maybe the time of Jeroboam II in the northern kingdom and during the times of the godly kings in the southern kingdom. But most of the time, uh, Jeroboam II was the northern kingdom. I think I misstated. Um, But it was a hand-to-mouth thing. And a person worked a day to get food for a day. It was like being in the wilderness where God said, I'll give you your your bread every day. Now on the Sabbath day, I want you to not gather any bread. And what was behind that? Was it because of a system of laws that God just indiscriminately put on them? He said, I want you to learn something. He said, you can learn something from the Sabbath that you can't learn any other way. You are in a world, Corey, where if you're going to feed your children, and Lord, you got a house full of them. If you're going to feed your children, if you're going to take care of your wife, you're probably going to have to put your nose to the grindstone seven days a week. But if you will take a day to honor me and not do what you can do, but trust what I have promised, Corey, I will do more for you in six days than you can do for yourself in seven. That's what's behind the tithe. It's not that God needs us to give him some money. You know, remember one of the Star Trek movies where God appears in the movie and tells Captain Kirk he wants his ship to leave the planet. And Captain Kirk was a better theologian than most of us. He said, if you're God, why do you need a ship? You know, and all this stuff was going, why does God need a ship? And then that got God mad because he was no God. But you see, God doesn't need a dime out of every dollar. But I tell you what God desperately needs. He needs Corey to understand, Corey, if you'll give me one dime out of every dollar, it's not that I need it, but you need to be able to understand that by obeying me, you'll have more out of 90% than you'll ever have out of 100%. So the, the, the Sabbath, the tithe, It was designed to make our lives richer. Now, loved ones, as we go forward with sanctification, we tend to put all this stuff in the mix. Right now, we're a nation, and the Christians in nations are are saying, I'm going to choose this view, or I'm going to choose this view, and this is what will redeem our nation. Well, I think there are right views and wrong views. I I think there are good ideas and bad ideas. But um, again, what I believe is that God is waiting for the church. And I say amen to Tony Evans. God's not nearly as interested in working in the White House as he is working in the church house. Because if the church can ever get to the point where we solely depend on the Lord, our, our views are okay, our politics are okay. All of this stuff is okay But you've got to understand, the church was never a church that was a political powerhouse until about 300 years ago. The church found its identity in prayer and righteous living and being the conscience of a nation. So when we start walking in sanctification, we're not saying that it's God and the Democrats or God and the Republicans 
or God in liberalism and God in socialism or God in capitalism or God in whatever. You, you can have those views. I just wish you'd let others have their views. You can have those views. But at the end of the day, whenever the further we stray from holy living, the word of God, a church being what it ought to be, the further we get from that, the more ineffective we will be, the more carnal our message, the more disastrous the results. But when we walk in sanctification, it does for us like the Sabbath. It makes our lives richer and more beautiful and more loving. Now, oh my goodness, that's just number one. Hurry, please. Number two, freedom involves the freedom to say no as well as the freedom to say yes. We, we've kind of talked about this um, as, as churches begin to walk in sanctification, we have to understand that sanctification is not a legal, legalistic holiness. And freedom is not a, I can do anything I want. You know, I, I, I've, I've got something I carry around. My kids love it. It was Ron, per, Ron Swanson's permit. And you, Ron Swanson opened up his permit and it just says, I can do whatever I want. You know, I love that permit. But if we're not careful, we'll have a holiness uh, that says, I can't do anything. And what's just as bad is a holiness that says, I can do anything. And loved ones, when Paul taught us, and, and you think of how much space it takes up in the New Testament. I'm not here to make a case for you shouldn't do this or you shouldn't do that. That's, that's, not, that's beyond what we want to talk about today. But Paul said this. There are two sides to this issue of eating meat offered to idols. <coughs> he said, on one hand, we know this. And that would lend toward being able to eat meat offered to idols. He said, but on the other hand, we know this. And that would, lend, would tend a little bit to, I'm uh, not going to eat meat offered to idols. So Paul settled it right there in the middle. He said, whenever you make this decision, you've got to understand you have liberty, but you, just because you have liberty, that doesn't mean you have to do it. He says, just because you can say yes, doesn't mean you have to. And I want to tell those of you that are so eager to say, well, I've got liberty in Christ. I, I can do whatever I want. You have a liberty. You can't do whatever you want, but you have a liberty to say yes to controversial things. But you also have the liberty and sometimes the responsibility to say no. Okay, let's go on to number three and number four. We can tie them together. It, it, it sounds so obvious that you think we shouldn't even have to mention it. But as we walk in sanctification, we do not quench the Spirit. That's 1 Thessalonians 5.19. That means we must be careful not to stop or hinder the work of the Spirit. We, we must be careful that we don't stop or hinder what God is trying to do. Now, that also means this. We have to be careful that we understand we don't stop what the Spirit is trying to do. A lot of times we think that because somebody doesn't allow my preference that we're quenching the spirit. If somebody doesn't sing the songs I want or we don't do this the way I want, that we're quenching the spirit. No, we're just quenching you or, or me. I mean, I, can, I, can I tell you 
Can I tell you? Can I be just dead honest with you? Our church, I'm the pastor. I'm the stinking pastor of this church. But this church does things I don't like. You say, well, what? Let me take some notes. Oh, you'll never know. Our church does things in a way that I'd rather we did it this way. Why? Because I'm old school. I'm a dinosaur and proud of it. I am old school. I, there are songs that I want us to sing that have not been sung around here in 30 years. We'll say, well, Pastor Will, I knew Glenn was a problem. Well, why do you allow it? If you're such a good pastor, why do you allow it? Because I believe that's the leading of the Holy Spirit. I believe God directs Glenn. I, I, believe, I believe groups are taught the way the leaders are led of the Holy Spirit. It's not the way I would do it. You know, I, I, I said to somebody in staff the other day, I said, I want to get, get a CD to everybody so that they can hear this. And I, somebody said, well, Pastor, we might not want to do CDs. And I knew what they were going to say. They were going to say, that's expensive to get CDs for everybody. And I'm saying, it's important. I want the CDs done. And then finally somebody said, Pastor, nobody listens to CDs. <laughs> I said, okay, then let's do eight tracks. <laughs> Loved ones, I'm serious. I could name off the top of my head a half dozen things that we do this way, that if it was up to me, we'd do this way. But the problem is, I think I'm wrong. I, I think this would be less effective. And I had to learn years ago that I must not mistake quenching Stephen for quenching the spirit. Haji mama, that's good preaching. <laughs> and here's the last thing, do not grieve the spirit. Now, quench means we don't stop or hinder, but grieve means we don't wound the heart of God. Loved ones, this idea of sanctification, it's designed like the Sabbath to make your life richer. It's designed to grow you up so that you can say yes or no. And it's designed to make us so sensitive to the Holy Spirit as we travel this journey that we don't want to stop anything He's doing. And we don't ever want to wound His heart. It's time for us to go. Ministry team is coming back to the platform and the, work, uh, the worship team and the ministry teams are going to move to their position here in the altar. This is how I want us to end this service. And, and remember, guys, we only got two words to go, but this is such an important word. This is why this one had to be considered by itself. This has to do, sanctification, the whole idea of us growing up in Him, of us living in community. You don't need to live in community if you just want to go your own way but you miss the benefit of community. If you are here or in Brown Chapel and you want to give your life to Jesus, there are ministry teams at the front of the building and they would love to pray with you as you give your life to Jesus. If you have questions, they'll be glad to answer them. If you need prayer for healing 
or for the wisdom of God, whatever you need, or you need a miracle, we believe in miracles, we believe in the miraculous, they're ready to pray for you. Uh, if you are online and you need prayer, especially if you want to give your life to Jesus, there's a number on the screen that you can call and we would be glad. But we believe there's no distance in prayer. And we believe that God can save you or heal you or do whatever you are needing done over the phone. If, if we have a lot of calls going and you have to leave a message, just leave a message. We'll call you right back just as soon as we're able. But others of you, you may find yourself in a position that I've been in before where I just realize that I need to just step back in my zeal. I've had bad attitudes in my zeal to please the Lord. I have judged those that weren't living just like I was living. And I, I am, I, I tell you the, this trouble that we prayed for the violence and just the chaos in our society I tell you what I really believe, this isn't gonna sound very prophetically pleasing, but I believe that it's going to continue and continue and continue until beginning with the church, we get to the point where all we know to do is throw ourselves totally on the mercy of God. We're stopping short right now with agendas, with, with procedures, with politics, with even doctrines, we're stopping short and we're putting our eggs in those baskets. But I believe every basket is going to catch fire and burn. I believe every egg will be prone to be broken until we realize that the safest place is for us to come before the Lord with humility. Loved ones, I'd, I'd, my life would be so much easier if I could just come up with a compromise that takes everything in and just says, we will do a little of this, little of this, little of this, little of that. And, and every week somebody wants me to make a compromise. But loved ones, I, I would be such an evil pastor if I did that. I would be such a wicked leader if I did that to give you for a moment hope in a broken system. We are throwing ourselves on the mercy of God. Things need to be set right. And they will be, but not through the devices of man. It'll be through the devices of God. At least that's where it will start. And some of us just need to do what your pastor does from time to time, because I'm just like you. I get frustrated, get angry, get tense. But so far, the only thing the Lord has invited me to do is just bury my face in the carpet before him, bury my face as it were in his lap and just say, Lord, do your work. That's what we've got to rediscover. And that's called sanctification. That's called sanctification. The process of turning from evil and turning to righteousness. Father, do your work. Stand with me, please. Do your work in our midst. Receive our praise. Some are coming forward for prayer. Some will pray where they're seated. Others may want to just come to the altar and spend time before you. But Father, we want to remember what Israel had to learn when they were trying to rebuild their temple, trying to get back into the presence of God in the Holy Land. 
they had to learn that it is not by might, it's not by power, it's by the Spirit of the living God. These mountains shall be removed by the Spirit of God. These hurts will be healed by the Spirit of God. The church will be reignited by the Spirit of God. There's no other option that we have. So help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.